0: So this is part two of a series working through some of the highlights of Revelation, and all I'm going to say is that if you weren't here for part one or if you didn't watch part one, I highly suggest you go back and watch that once this message is done. Uh, For part one, Ben did an amazing job of setting up the general category and outline of Revelation and really giving a feel for what kind of a book it is. In today's message, I'm going to be Referencing some of what he talked about, but I don't have time to do it all justice. But what I'm going to do is simply seamlessly pick off where he left off. Pick up where he left off, which is with his bottom line from last week. Uh, the The big message behind Revelation is that Jesus wins. You can summarize it in two words. Jesus wins. And the application, the takeaway from last week is that Christ with you is more powerful than any enemy before you. And this is the comfort of Revelation. It's not really designed to give you binoculars to peer into the future at hidden and secret details. It's not a symbolic book that gives hints about the rest of human history. The real point of the book is to give you comfort in knowing that God is present. And so much better than just God telling you, hey, I'm with you. The book of Revelation uses visions to startle your imagination, to evoke your emotion, and to move your heart so that you can see and feel that God is with you. And I'll just tell you one thing. When it comes to what Ben left off with last week, there is so much power if you believe this. Think about the difference it makes in your life when you believe that Christ is with you and therefore he is more powerful than any enemy that might be before you. There is so much power in this. But this can be something that's very difficult to believe. Just think about John's original audience. Christians at the end of the first century, again, Ben did a great job of summarizing their situation, but they were being highly persecuted and being put to death. They believed that Jesus had inaugurated the kingdom of God, but all they could see was the empire of Rome. They proclaimed a gospel that declared God's love for the world, but Rome declared a proclamation that those who believed the gospel would be imprisoned or put to death. They believed Jesus lived, died, and rose again, but the world kept getting worse, not better. They were struggling They were struggling to believe this. And I think a lot of times we do too. As you look at the world around you and the many evils, you can begin to wonder to yourself, where is Christ with me? And if he really is powerful, then why does it feel like there are so many enemies around me? Or the question I'll put before you is, why does it feel like I can be surrounded by enemies when Christ is with me. And maybe you're in a season like this right now, where there's just so many things working against you, or one big thing, and you've been praying and praying and wondering when Christ would show up. When will his power work on my behalf? And we have to do something with that, don't we? We have to reconcile what we see as a truth and what we see in our lives. And maybe for some of us, there's different ways we reconcile that. I know for me, one big way that I used to think of things was, you know, the the things I hear in church, like that's the spiritual level. But then there's ordinary life and there's kind of this gap between the two. You can kind of visit the one, but then you spend your time in the other. That explains why God is powerful, but it feels like there's so many enemies surrounding me. Why, Why is that for you? What do you do when you feel like you're just being surrounded by evil? It's one thing for God to say, I'm with you. But it's another thing for him to give a vision that startles your imagination so that you can see that he is with you and he is powerful. So, what we're going to do today is get into Revelation chapter six, where it gives a startling vision of what is commonly referred to as the six, I'm sorry, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I don't think is a fair title, but since that's what people are are familiar with, we'll kind of use it for a moment here. And it's in this vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that God speaks into this very issue of the evil that surrounds us and what he does about it. For me, for many of us, I think that we would just be content if God would explain the evil, like, why does evil exist, and why is it happening to me? We would be content just to know why, but what we're going to see is God does something much better than just explain to you why there's evil in your life. He's going to show you what he does about it. So in order to get to Revelation 6, we really have to start with Revelation 4, where this big vision begins. And I'm just going to put a couple of phrases up here to help get you into this mindset of what's happening in Revelation 6. And what I hope happens by the end of this message, as we dig into this section in Revelation, is that you will have your own personal framework for what to do when it feels like you're surrounded by evil. Through this vision, God gives us wisdom and insight to navigate that feeling, not just with a truth, God is with you, but with a visual representation of what is really going on. So here's what the apostle John saw as God gave him a revelation that he wanted to share with his church. John writes, after this, after he wrote seven letters to seven churches, John says, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in the sky, in heaven. So he's seeing something that he normally doesn't see. And this is God bringing to him a very important vision. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John, you just wrote seven letters to seven churches addressing what they're going through right now. Thank you. That's what I wanted you to do. But now come here. I'm going to show you what has to happen in the future. And who wouldn't lean in to get that sort of information and to see whatever it is that God wants him to see. And so God takes John in this vision to, to symbolically show him what must take place after this. And here's a huge side note. I had to cut down a lot of stuff from the sermon just to make it fit within the 35 minutes or so that we have. But if you look at Matthew chapter 25, which I highly recommend, or Matthew 24, in Matthew 24, we basically see the same things taking place. Jesus is talking to his, his closest followers and they're asking him about the end of the world. And Jesus says to them, these things must happen. These things must take place. Not because God is forcing them to happen, but because God has already seen the future just as if it were in the past. And so to John, God says, this is what must happen. It must happen. It's going to happen this way. This is what will take place. And in chapter four, it describes this crazy vision. I can only summarize it for you, but there's this vision of an amazing king-like person sitting on a throne, God, Around the throne, there are four really weird creatures depicted by different animals. They have wings, and they have eyes all over their wings. We can't get into all the details, but just remember there's four creatures around God, and whenever you see the number four in Revelation, that's a reference to the earth in some way. Four corners of the map, four winds, the earth. And then around those four, you have others, you've got 24 elders, you've got angels, but the important thing for this vision is you've got God in the middle, you have these four creatures, and one by one, these four creatures are going to command a different character to take the stage. But one of the most troubling things is what happened in chapter 5. Uh, John goes on, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing not just on one side as is tradition, but writing on both sides, suggesting that there's a lot to share. It was sealed with seven seals. A seal is something that only one person has the right to open. If it's sealed, if it has your name on it, only you have the right to open it. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy? to break the seals and open this scroll with so much information about what's going to happen, but no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth could open the scroll or even take a peek inside. Until the main character enters the vision. A lamb that looked like it had been slain went and took the scroll from the one who sat on the throne. In this vision, Jesus was being represented as a lamb who, who had been slain, who is now worthy to take this scroll and re- reveal what is inside to, to John and, and to the church. And the, the important thing for this is if, if you're even going to consider the end of the world or things to come, Jesus is your key. Jesus is the beginning, he is the end. You start with him on what he has done. And only in that sense will it make any sense. So the the lamb takes the scroll, he's going to open it up and reveal seven seven different things. We're actually going to work through six of them because the seventh thing is kind of the introduction for the next vision that, that John receives. But here's what we're going to see. These four creatures are going to call out four horsemen and what we need to just just kind of set your sights on and to make sense of this, what what we're going to see is four principles that are true of this fallen world. One by one, these creatures call out these horsemen, and each horseman represents a principle that is true of how this world operates or how it is governed. Four basic principles that help us make sense of the world we live in, and it helps us make sense of why it can feel like we are so often... Surrounded by evil. So let's jump in Revelation chapter 6. I watched, John says, as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Opening the scroll, I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. He wasn't saying this to John. The living creature was saying this to the horseman who would enter the scene. Come, I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And this is the first rider of the so called apocalypse. An important thing to keep in mind in Revelation is that it's not up to us to look at world history and figure out, like, who is this white rider and what does the bow symbolize. When it comes to Revelation, the key is. To understand this 66th book of the Bible, you need to read the first 65. God explains himself. Scripture interprets itself. And if you just look at Revelation and try to get details about the apocalypse or the end of the world, it's kind of like opening up a novel to the final chapter and trying to understand all the characters and the tension and the plot twists just by reading the final chapter. But as we look at Revelation in chapter six here, we're simply going to let God explain himself, let the Bible explain itself. White is always a symbol of purity and holiness. The one who rode on this white horse is pure and holy and sinless. He he has a crown, which means he is victorious. He has conquered an enemy and he is worthy to receive this crown. He has a bow, which means he is, He is out there to conquer, to defeat. In fact, we are told he is a conqueror, and he is bent on conquest. He has already been victorious, but he is not satisfied. He wants to conquer more. As we put all these details together, we see a clear picture that this first rider, the rider on the white horse, is a clear reference either to Christ himself or, at the very least, to the gospel, the news about Christ. Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world and share the good news until it's been shared with every single person. I have conquered sin and death, but I'm not content with that. Now I want to go out and bring this news to the world. And so as you picture Jesus here, I, I think it's common for us to sentimentalize him, to think, oh, he's just you know, a warm, fuzzy, cuddly person who accept, accepts people as they are, and he's always gentle. And it's true. He's gentle with people, and he, he doesn't break sinners just because they're unholy. He welcomes sinners. But what we have to acknowledge about Jesus is that he is not just sentimentalized. He is militaristic. He is on conquest. And when there's an enemy that stands between him and the sheep he loves, he will not be gentle. He will take his bow, he will take his arrow, and he will defeat whatever he needs to defeat. Now, you might be asking, well, what is he going to conquer? And we're not told yet, but pretty soon we'll see the other horsemen take the scene and his competition will be, we'll be taking the stage in John's vision. But here's the first thing I want to share with you. When it comes to your life, I know it can seem like, oh, you've got your Bible, spiritual, church you know, part of your life where God is powerful and he loves you and he forgives you. But then it kind of seems like there's a different segment of life or ordinary life where God doesn't really interact much or it's hard to see him. But it feels like we're surrounded by evil. Here's what Jesus declares in Revelation 6. He declares that he is Lord over your life right now. That he's not just Lord of your soul and someday you'll be in heaven. He's Lord over your life right now, bent on conquest of anything that separates you from him. He's Lord over your life. And as the next writers come out and are commanded to reveal themselves to, to John and to us through scripture, we're going to see what it means that this rider on the white horse is bent on conquest on your behalf. So we're going to look at the second rider here. You'll notice that each of the four, it starts the same way. Uh, It starts like this. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and at this command, the second rider must come out. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its writer was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Again, I have to inject caution. If you try to take scripture and assign it to modern or past world leaders or political leaders or kingdoms or or events, we're always going to run into the trouble of us trying to put into scripture something that's not there. When we simply let... the the Bible interpret itself, fiery red is always a picture of war. Red is the symbol of warfare. You see that throughout the book of Revelation and you see that in the previous uh, apocalyptic literature like Ezekiel. They take peace. This writer takes peace and he's given a large sword, all clear references to one of the governing principles that we see true of the world around us and simply this. The world that we live in is not automatically set to get ahead through cooperation. Our natural default is competition. As you think about the large world powers, they they don't increase their influence and power by being nice to each other. It's through show of force, it's through tactical strikes, and it's through overwhelming power that world powers increase their power and influence. The the governing factor that runs this world is that we are a world at war. And that's the main principle that we see from the second horseman. This world operates under principles of war. This is true of nations where you have to exert force in order to increase, in order to be safe. Um, This is true of households Our natural default is not to be kind and patient and gentle and forgiving. Our natural default is to be overwhelming. And this is true personally. When a Christian is at prayer, in prayer, there can be a fierce war going on even when the guns are silent. There's warfare. This is the default. This is the way in which this world naturally operates. And what God is doing in this revelation to John, God isn't explaining why war has to happen. He's not attributing like, here's why Domitian is doing what he's doing to the Christians. He's not explaining evil. He's just saying, here's how it is. The world operates under principles of war. And maybe you've been feeling that in your home, in your heart, in your world. But God's not done. The third seal is opened, and it gets worse. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was before me a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. In biblical apocalyptic literature, black is the color of famine. It's the color of greed sometimes. And what follows next, I'll admit, it's hard to understand. So I'm just going to read it, and then I'll tell you what the commentators told me. Here, here we go. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. What? <laughs> Long story short, the price set for this amount of food would have been famine rations. A family could hardly survive if they had to use an entire day's worth of money to buy this little amount of food. Um, Translation, jack up the prices because food supply is really low. Inflation, extraordinary inflation, where people would hardly be able to afford the barest of necessities. But then you see the opposite. Don't damage the oil. Um, Don't mix the oil with water. Don't mix the wine with water. Don't damage it. Don't pollute it. The idea there is don't mess with the finer things. Just jack up the price on the cheap things. And in in today's language, it would be like, for the price of bread, start charging $50 a loaf, but make sure that you don't water down the caviar. Like, make sure that we keep the really good stuff good because we need that. But for the poor people, you can jack up the price as much as you want. So you see two things. Number one, you see greed in this, where the rich people are keeping what they have. They want to preserve what they have. And then you also see on the other end, famine and want. And that's the second principle that God wants to show us in this world. Sometimes it can feel like you're surrounded by evil because this is a world that operates on the principles or out of fear of famine scarcity, not having enough. And I know some of you have gone through seasons like this where you didn't have a job, you didn't have a career, you didn't know what the next step was, and rent was due. There was a fear of famine in your life. And for some of you, it's been the opposite. You've been afraid of losing your luxury, and greed has overwhelmed you. What we see as an overriding principle in this world is that it operates out of fear of famine. And sometimes that can make it feel like evil is surrounding you, and that even that evil is within you. I wish I could tell you it gets better, but the seals continue to open. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The Greek word for pale is actually a tint of green. And for us um, English speakers, I think we could use other, uh, either one, when you're pale, or kind of when you're green in the face, the, the implication is that you're not well, you're sick sickness happens. And sometimes that can feel like pure evil, can't it? When, when a sickness befalls you that you had no power over and no control over, but now you have to deal with it as best you can. And as if that weren't worse, there's even something else. It's not just the paleness, it's not just the fear of death, but it's death itself. And then Hades that follows after it, which is what happens after death? That's something that every person in this world has to navigate and work through on their own. And this is the great evil that we see around us every day. It's, it's interesting how much of a, um, a, an economy is made through health products and how many commercials we see that promise you that a pill will take away your aches and pains or help minimize your disease with only a few side effects. There's something that we're all dealing with and wrestling with this world, and it's actually a struggle uh, the world operates in a struggle against death itself, trying to stave it off, trying to avoid it, trying to prolong it. But we're all in this struggle, and this is the ultimate evil that that can feel like is surrounding you. And those are the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the so-called apocalypse. Not a rush of, or surge of evil that can be easily identified as, oh, there's the horseman or there's the horseman, but it's a lifetime of their occupation. And here's the scary part. After a while, we just get acclimated to their presence, don't we? We just get used to the fact that people get sick and people die. We get used to the fact that some people will be hungry. We can get apathetic towards the evils that are around us and within us. And so in this vision, God doesn't just tell you to be aware of the evil. He shocks your imagination with four horsemen, one against three. Unfair odds, isn't it? The, the, the rider on the white horse against the other three, what, what can he possibly do? Um, But before we get to that, there's two other seals that are opened up, and I just want to make sure I include these because they're kind of important. These aren't horsemen, but they're two other evils that can infiltrate this world. The first seal I'm just going to summarize is targeted persecution. A minority of people is being targeted for persecution, and sometimes you endure that in this broken world. The other thing we see is indiscriminate catastrophes or random catastrophes, earthquakes, natural disasters. You're not being targeted. It's just for being human, this is happening to you in this fallen, broken world. And here's one important thing I wanted to to bring out. When it comes to the evil that can surround you, one way to deal with it, which doesn't work, one way to deal with it would be to minimize it. Maybe to tell yourself, you know what, Uh, it's just, that's life. Someday I'll be in heaven. That's what God wants. He just wants to take me to heaven. But in the book of Revelation, God does not minimize the evil that surrounds you. (laughs) Here's what he does. Evil is actually named and numbered. He gives it a name. He assigns it a number. Because he is shocking your imagination, moving your emotion and stirring your heart to recognize the evil that is around you. And I think Revelation 6 ends with a great question. Inside of these seals that have been broken and opened and all the things that God has shared, the question it ends with is, who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? it seems like a rhetorical question, like <laughs> nobody can. But then Revelation 7 gives an answer. In Revelation 7, it's almost like God presses pause on the entire thing, and he says, wait, 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 wait. Before any of this can continue, before anything moves, before we press play on human history, there's something I need to do. And just to summarize, John says, I saw another angel coming from the east having the seal of the living God. You know how seals can um, seal scrolls so only certain people have access. God says, I have a seal that I will place on people so that they will be protected, so that no one, no one can get to them except me. And then what we see is the angel goes around and he seals those who belong to God himself. Uh, first, it's given a symbolic number, 144,000, which, as you look at the multiples, is basically a way of saying all of God's people of all time. But you might wonder to yourself, well, wait a minute. When does God seal me, or did he seal me? Here's what I want to show you. When you feel surrounded by evil in your life, I want you to look for the rider on the white horse. When the red horse, the pale horse, and the black horse show up in your heart or in your life, you need to look at the white horse because here's what that writer does. In John chapter 14, John already wrote this years ago before Revelation. John had recorded what the white horse was already doing for him. The night before his death, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, war is about to break out, but peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives through competition and through power, I give to you through being a servant and through giving my life as a ransom for many. My peace I give you, therefore do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The white horse rode in to surround the enemy. There was another time where people were wondering about food, scared of the black horse and what he could do to take away their food in times of of want. And so the white horse rode in. And John recorded this Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And no matter what that black horse threatened to do, the white horse surrounded it. And then there was another time when the pale horse arrived. Sickness had struck, and one of Jesus' closest friends had died. And when the white horse arrived on the scene, he didn't just give up and say, well, I guess we have heaven someday, but here's what Jesus declared. The white horse said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. The white horse surrounded the enemy. And we could go on. There's many others. But as you look at what this means for you, it's so much better than God saying, hey, cheer up. Things will work out. I'm with you. God shocks your imagination through this vision of the four horsemen to stir your emotion, to move your heart, so that you can see with your own eyes what it means that He is with you. And here's the best part. Remember how God told John, here are the things that have to happen, here's what must happen. The final thing that God showed him to me brings so much comfort because this is the first time in Revelation where the Apostle John saw a vision of you. Here's what he saw. He said, After all this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. People from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Who can stand this? You can You have to because John saw it. They were standing before the throne and before the lamb. And you might wonder to yourself, how can I withstand the evil that surrounds me in my life? If John were here, he would say, you can. You have to because I saw it. Uh John said, I saw you. I saw you wearing white robes, but you, I'm I'm a sinful person. You, you, You don't know me. John says, I'm just telling you what I saw. You were declared holy and you were declared forgiven. I saw you wearing white robes and you were holding palm branches of victory in your hands. And you cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to my God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I saw you. And as you think about the evil that surrounds you in life, I know it's maybe our immediate reaction to say, I I wish God would just explain this to me. Why is this happening? Why is he doing this to me? But we tend to explain things when we're threatened by them. And God is not threatened by evil. So here's what I want you to take with you today. Evil does not need to be explained. If God were threatened by evil, he would try to explain his way around it. Nowhere in the Bible do you see him explaining it. All he tells us is this world is sinful because we ruined it. He doesn't explain evil because it is surrounded. So here's my hope for you. As you go into life and you feel threatened by the evil that seems to be surrounding you, that you would see the white horse doing Conquered, having conquered sin and death, having already won victory at the cross, but not content with that, he continually pursues the enemies that stand against you. He doesn't have to explain why evil exists because he has already surrounded it. And this summarizes this section of the book of Revelation, not just the four horsemen, but this section that really looks at the struggles we go through on earth and what God is up to when they happen. But I hope you can join us again next week. It's going to be crazy. We're going to look at a red dragon and a war in heaven. Um, Basically, we're going to look at the spiritual struggle that we can't see as we live here on earth. So I hope you can join us for part three of Revelation. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, there are plenty of struggles that we go through in life, troubles that can surround us and be around us, And I'll be honest, just for myself, sometimes these evils can make me wonder where you are and why your power isn't doing anything in life. And there can be moments of doubt, but I pray in those moments, we would not just have this promise that you're with us, but that you would shock us with our imagination to picture that rider on the white horse conquering the enemies in our life shock us so that our hearts would be moved and our emotions would be stirred to feel the presence of Jesus, having already, with his bow, with his, with his word, disarmed the enemies that stand against us. And on those days where we feel like we're conquered, draw our attention to the rider on the white horse who has conquered and is bent on defeating any enemy that stands against us. So give us that peace in our hearts, even as the world is at war. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.